0: Welcome to another QuackCast update. I have received some emails wondering if I am still doing these QuackCasts. Evidently, I am. However, it's summer here in the Great Pacific Northwest, the kids are out of school, and there are actually better things to do than sit in front of a computer. Once the kids are back in school and the weather goes to the Pacific Northwest drizzle, my overall productivity will improve for the QuackCasts and other tasks in my life. Until such time, however, the golf course calls with my children, who, by the way, are club champions this year. I am nothing if not a braggart about my children, and with good reason. This is also the first time I will have recorded this using GarageBand 08, and we'll see if it works better or worser than the other versions of GarageBand. I had received a hunk of emails politely pointing to the Lancet Infectious Disease meta-analysis, that suggested the benefit of echinacea for cold. This perhaps would be a good time to evaluate not only this meta-analysis, but meta-analyses in general, and as back in the college days, compare and contrast a meta-analysis with a structured review. The Lancet meta-analysis, forever referred to in this podcast as the Lancet, suggested that echinacea had efficacy and clinical infectious disease structured review, which I will hereby refer to as CID, suggested that it did not. So it might be informative to compare and contrast the two reviews. Which one's right? Both? Neither? We shall see. Statistics are used like a drunk uses a light post for support rather than illumination. Mark Twain. So, what is a meta-analysis? To paraphrase Will Rogers, I never meta-analysis I really liked. Well, the problem with medical studies especially in treatments, is that initially there are small studies that are done, often with lots of methodological problems, such as a lack of blinding or poorly defined enrollment criteria. These small studies proliferate, and because of methodological problems, they often have contradictory results. Now, the gold standard for any treatment is the large, randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind study. Double-blind is not where Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder are doing the study. But in fact, neither the patient nor the doctor knows who is getting the drug and who is getting the placebo, which is not as easy as one might think, as patients are often very clever in their ways of determining whether or not they're getting placebo. And this can be problematic in things such as magnet therapy, which all you need is a piece of metal to see if you're on placebo or not. But the biggest problem with most studies is often the number of patients. You want large numbers of patients to make sure that the result is not due to some random clustering of data, but are in fact valid. The theory is that if you collect all the small clinical trials and try and control all the variables and include only the good studies and make them one large pseudo-trial, then the results that will emerge will be meaningful. Now, as a practicing physician, I find the meta-analysis helpful as a good overview of topics, and they often help point to fine points of studies that help guide therapy. In my own field of infectious diseases, the meta-analysis of steroids and the treatment of sepsis, and the best therapies for neurocysticercosis, which is a parasite of the brain, are two good examples of meta-analyses that I found helpful to put large, complex fields into perspective. So I think they function better as a review to compare and contrast studies, and they may point the way to better-defined clinical trials. But I'll let you in on a little secret here. Promise me you won't tell anybody. But I've been a practicing physician now for about a quarter of a century, and I'll tell you, it's impossible. There is just too much information out there. In my own field of infectious diseases, there are 10,000, yes, 10,000 articles published each year. So when you see a patient with an unusual disease and you're trying to see... If a diagnostic or therapeutic intervention applies to this patient who often doesn't fit the profile of the studies, meta analysis can give a hint because they help bring out some of the subtleties and fine points of disease. But the conclusions of meta-analyses are no better than the sum of their parts. Garbage in, garbage out. frogwa in, fragua out. And in the hierarchy of medical understanding, a good clinical trial in a top-notch journal like the New England Journal of Medicine or the Annals of Internal Medicine always trumps any and every meta-analysis, no matter how well done. And that is always. So, often the hope behind a meta-analysis is if you can collect a series of piles of dog crap, and you put it into one big pile of dog crap—this is a medical podcast, by the way, so crap here is a medical term— You hope you get gold. Unfortunately, when you collect multiple small piles of dog crap, what you usually end up with is one big pile of dog crap. I can't look at the word analysis without seeing the first four letters of that particular word. But this is brought home by, you guessed it, a meta-analysis of meta-analyses. I do so love a good recursion. Now, in an issue of the 1997 New England Journal of Medicine, they looked at the results of meta-analyses published in the Big Four. That's the New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet, The Annals of Internal Medicine, and JAMA. Then they compared the results of the meta-analysis to subsequent large randomized controlled trials, which are the best way short of a psychic prediction of knowing what a therapy will do. Guess what? Come on, guess. They don't do that well. The results of the meta-analysis poorly predicted the results of good clinical trials. To use a dry academic quote, According to our analysis, if there had been no subsequent randomized controlled trial, the meta-analysis would have led to adoption of an ineffective treatment in 32% of cases and a rejection of useful treatment in 33% of cases. Okay? So they don't work. They're not good at predicting reality. Also, 46% of the divergences in results resulted in a positive meta-analysis followed by a negative randomized controlled trial. So, in other words, you have a positive meta, but when you did a real study, it didn't work. There are several reasons why a meta-analysis might have a positive results that could not be confirmed by a subsequent trial. Publication bias refers to the tendency of investigators to preferentially submit studies with positive results for publication. This is key. Positive results get published. We'll talk more about that later. And the tendency of editors to accept them. People like published studies that show something you can do later. They like positive studies. A meta-analysis that excluded unpublished studies or did not locate and include them would thus be more likely to have false positive results. I have to read this stuff for a living, so pity me. To continue... The remaining 54% of identified divergences involved a negative meta-analysis followed by a positive randomized controlled trial. Our findings seem to indicate that summarizing all the information contained in a set of trials into a single odds ratio may greatly oversimplify an extremely complex issue. In other words, meta-analyses can't be trusted. The popularity of meta-analysis may at least partly come from the fact it makes life simpler for small-minded doctors and easier for reviewers as well as readers. However, oversimplification may lead to inappropriate conclusions. Wake up! Wake up! Damn you, wake up! I'm only beginning! So, the bottom line is that a meta-analysis do not reliably predict the answers that are best answered in clinical trials. But wait, there's more. So, clinical meta-analyses don't give good results for predicting the results of real trials. Well, at least they do a good job on the meta-analysis, right? Well, this is not the case, and it's very depressing when you start to peruse the literature on meta-analyses in general. A recent article in the JAMA looked at meta-analyses and repeated them to see if they were accurately done. They looked at a specific kind of meta-analysis, one that uses a technique called standardized mean difference, which is a way of controlling for differences of scale in comparing data. If one trial uses a 1 to 10 scale for, say, depression, and another uses a 1 to 50 scale, how do you compare them? You do it by applying a standardized mean difference. Now, they found the problem in this JAMA review is that the statisticians are apparently unable to apply their statistics correctly, and they are unable to extract data from the original studies correctly to be used in their meta-analysis. The authors, when repeating the analysis in the meta-analysis, found errors that either reversed or negated the results of the original meta-analysis. To quote again in a funny voice, Conclusions. The high proportion of meta-analyses based on SMDs that show errors indicates that although the statistical process is ostensibly simple, data extraction is particularly liable to errors that can negate or even reverse the findings of the study. This has implications for researchers and implies that all readers, including journal reviewers and policymakers, should approach such meta-analyses with caution. The take-home message is that those who extract the data may not be doing a good job. And they point out the fact that there is no data to suggest that three people, if asked to extract data, will do it the same way and come up with the same results. You think it would be simple, but it often isn't. It's well-known in medicine, for example, if you ask three radiologists to read an X-ray, you will get three slightly different interpretations. The subjective nature of medicine ensures this will happen. The same issue evidently holds true for mathematicians looking at data. There is great operator variability, and knowing that puts the results of meta-analyses in question. And finally, let's not forget bias. Money always talks. Always. The British Medical Journal compared meta-analyses with the stated funding versus those with industry funding and those without explicitly stated funding sources and found that when industry funded, the meta-analyses were of poorer quality and, surprise, surprise, more likely to recommend a therapy. How can he close me up? On what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. Somehow, I think this is a nice metaphor for modern medicine. But what a surprise. Where you get your money influences your outcome analysis. And there are other biases in studies. I bet if you could determine whether or not the author believed in a particular alternative therapy or not, that it would correlate with the results of the meta-analysis... Bias is subtle and tricky and very hard to eradicate, which is why in medicine we put so much emphasis on the double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. It minimizes, but not eradicate, bias. You may ask yourself, well, what's the proof of this kind of bias? And you may ask yourself, how did I get here? And you may ask yourself, am I right? Am I wrong? And you may tell yourself, my God, what have I done? But not only are positive studies more likely to be published, as demonstrated in the JAMA, but negative effects and harm are also more likely to not be reported. This study was published in JAMA as well, and it's a curious study, because what they did is that the results of the study were compared to the protocol for the study, and the curious thing happened. Interventions that worked were more likely to be reported than interventions that did not work. Again, a quote from JAMA, Statistically significant outcomes had a higher odds of being reported compared with non-significant outcomes for both efficacy and harm. In comparing published articles with protocols, 62% of trials had at least one primary outcome that was changed, introduced, or admitted. And that is curious. But even more curious is the fact that most researchers denied that this occurred. 86% of survey responders denied the existence of unreported outcomes despite clear evidence to the contrary. We are never deceived. We deceive ourselves. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. So, if you do not have a definitive clinical trial, any meta-analysis will have a built-in bias in favor of a positive outcome. Meta analyses should have a built in bias in favor of showing a positive effect on the outcome at issue. So, meta analyses have real issues. Better, or so they say, is the structured review. This differs from meta analysis in that in a structured review, they try in to include the quality of the study as well as the outcomes and are currently considered superior as a way to review a topic. However, Structured reviews are not without their issues. As shown in a review of structured reviews, as opposed to, I suppose, a meta-analysis of meta-analyses, their half-life is short. Within two years, about a quarter of structured reviews will be out of date, and within five years, half will be out of date, often due to new data invalidating the original review. And that's a big problem in medicine. New and increasingly better studies are done that refine our understanding of diagnostics and therapeutics and we have to, oh, I don't know, change our minds. I'm envious of alternative medicine as these practitioners never have to let new data alter their beliefs or practice. Same old, same old, year after year. Never have to keep up, never have to change your mind. And I know that changing your mind is extremely painful. (laughs) Burning, burning, like a vampire in the sun. And then there are the Cochrane reviews, which are sort of the gold standard of reviews, in that they are both standardized and transparent in their methodologies. And it's interesting that a review of meta-analyses and structured reviews found that Cochrane reviews were much less likely to support an intervention about 14% of the time versus non-Cochrane reviews about 50% of the time. Bias, bias, bias. It's everywhere. So, what about the recent Lancet meta-analysis. Let's go through it now with that in mind, shall we? And I'm going to compare the Lancet to the CID article, which have different s- results from their analysis of the data, and see if we can see why there's a difference. Now, the Lancet article included 14 trials that they thought were good, based on the fact they were randomized and placebo-controlled, and that, and here's the kicker, quote, "...adequately reported data on cold incidence and duration." This gets to the point that a meta-analysis summarizing all the information contained in a set of trials into a single odds ratio may greatly oversimplify in extremely complex issues. They looked at how often people got a cold and how long it lasted. Interestingly, they did not include three placebo-controlled trials that were in the CID review. Fifty-eight studies were not included, that they found, as they had no visible endpoint, fair enough, they were looking at prevention and duration of cold, and if the other 58 studies didn't have that data, there was no data to extract for their meta-analysis, and they were rightly excluded. But you can see already some selection bias at work in the final result. They basically picked 14 of 72 placebo-controlled trials to see what they show. Now, most of these studies were crap, I admit, and this is one of the biggest issues. Depending on which piles of crap you include can influence the final result. Sigh. But it's already hard to get excited about the results, is it not? In contrast, the CID review was a structured analysis. They looked not at particular endpoints so much as the quality of the studies, a slightly different approach. In this study, they found 9 of 322 articles on duration of common cold and they based them on quality. Three of the studies in the CID review were not in the Lancet meta-analysis. Huh, well I guess they have different PubMed searches but this again gets to the issue of GIGO, garbage in garbage out. So the Lancet looked at the prevention and the length of symptoms and the CID article focused on quality. The Lancet extracted their data and then used the Dersimian and Laird random effects model on the data. And here, I'm afraid, is where I fail you. I have a lot of math in my background. My undergrad degree was in physics, and I took four years of math in college. I'm comfortable with math, but statistics make my head hurt a lot. My head hurts. And this comes to another issue with meta-analysis. Statistics in these sorts of studies are usually uninterpretable by anybody except for those who are immersed in statistics. Did they extract the data correctly? I don't know. Was the data correctly analyzed? I don't know. Is this the correct statistical analysis on the data? I don't know. If there is guilt by association, the odds are good that the answer to the above questions is no. But I can't tell you. Now, the... Dersimian and Laird method is a way of accounting explicitly for a cross-study variation. However, again to quote from one website, quote, "...more data are required for random effects models to achieve the same statistical power as fixed effects models, and there is no, quote, exact way, unquote, to handle studies with small numbers when assuming random effects." This should not be a problem with most meta-analyses, however. Do not use random effect models for sparse data sets. Random effects is not a cure for the difficulty of generalizing the results of a meta-analysis to real-world situations. End quote. Now, they recognize this in the study, and they did other statistical analysis that I don't understand. Sorry, to quote Bones, I'm a doctor, not a statistician. And I'm also one crappy impressionist, I'm sorry. So I can't tell you in the end if the following results are legitimate or not. They found that Echinacea decreased the incidence of cold by 58% and the duration by 1.4 days. Now the only way that I could tell you if these results are valid is to go back and reperform this meta-analysis by getting all the papers and doing statistics myself, which I am not capable of doing. So that's the results of this meta-analysis. And after the review of meta-analyses, do what you want with the information. If you like the concept of guilt by association, you'll just ignore the meta-analysis. In contrast, the Clinics of Infectious Disease standardized review looked at the issue and found the usual scam finding. The better the study, the less the effect. The biggest issue they found, which is the biggest issue in most medical studies, is that they lacked proof of blinding that you did not really know if the patients knew what they had or did not. And if interestingly enough, they found this methodologic flaw in five of the studies that were used in the Lancet review. So depending on which subset of studies you want to review and what analysis you apply to them, you can say that Echinacea works, the Lancet, or it doesn't, Clinics of Infectious Diseases and the Cochrane Reviews. So what are we going to do? Well, you trust good clinical trials. And there are at least two, the Annals of Internal Medicine, Bad treatment of common cold with unrefined echinacea showed no efficacy. And the best was the New England Journal of Medicine article by Turner, who gave people echinacea and then squirted a rhinovirus in their nose and found echinacea did not do squat. The Turner article in the New England Journal of Medicine resulted in a letter to the editor of criticism. The essential contents of this letter have then appeared in every article and almost verbatim and without any evident cognition by everyone who's ever written an article about echinacea and I think is evidence that the author is pro-echinacea. I will repeat the article as follows. Okay, you ready for another dry quote One postulation of the possible reduced benefits with direct inoculation is that echinacea works better on preventing the common cold caused by viruses other than rhinovirus. With over 200 viruses capable of causing the cold, echinacea could have modest effect against rhinovirus, but marked effect against other viruses. Of the direct inoculation trials, the most widely touted is the study by Turner published in 2005. The authors compared patients given E. augustophilia equivalent to 900 mg a day of placebo and showed that echinacea did not have, quote, clinically significant effects on infection with a rhinovirus or in the clinical illness that results from it, end quote. The German Commission E. has approved E. purpura at a recommended dose of 900 mg but has not approved E. augustophilia. The 1999 monograph recommends E. Augusta at a dose of three grams, a dose at three times the dose used by Turner and his colleagues. As such, the dose used in this trial may have been far too low to be fully effective. End quote. Now, why do I mention this article? Well, let's go through the points raised one at a time. What is the basis of this WHO recommendation? Well, a 1993 German article that I cannot find, and I can't read German anyway, but it was in a natural health journal. This is the only article which the WHO monograph references and is not based upon a comprehensive analysis of the data. I'd say, in fact, that the WHO recommendation is probably worthless. Then they complained that Turner article underdosed the echinacea, but I went back and looked as best as I can tell from the studies in the Lancet meta-analysis. 2. Maybe 3 of the studies used the WHO dosing. All the other studies underdosed the Echinacea per the recommendations of the World Health Organization, not Pete Townsend. As I say, as best I can tell, because there are real issues from these papers in determining just how much Echinacea was given. They also complained about the use of Augustophilia, which has not been approved by the German Commission E. Always give full credit to the German Commission E. They are the standard by which we all live. But instead of approved echinacea purpura. Yet five of the studies in the meta-analysis used Augustophilia. So even though their meta-analysis showed that the wrong plant and underdosing was effective, they argue that the one study that showed efficacy was underdosed and used the wrong drug. They want to have their cake and eat it too. And finally, let's talk about this immune reaction or to infection or other foreign invaders that perhaps Echinasia is only effective against one virus. This, as we shall see, is nonsense. Now, when you have an immune response to a foreign material like a virus, there are two responses. There is the nonspecific response, which is the same to every virus, and there is a specific response, which is primarily mediated by antibody and takes about 10 days to kick in. This is how vaccines work. You get an injection of foreign protein, it takes about 10 14 days to get an antibody response, and then you have very specific immunity. But I can't emphasize enough that the delayed response is just that delayed. It takes time to get a specific response to a foreign protein that you've never seen before, such as a virus. It takes time. Now, the purported mechanism of echinacea is nonspecific. In the test tube, it generically enhances the response of different parts of the immune system to infection. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, this is a common response to many other foreign antigens. And there is a big difference between the test tube and people, because absorption, metabolism, and excretion of echinacea would play an important role in its effects, if any. Before you postulate that the results you see in the test tube are the same in people, you need to prove, among other things, that there are therapeutic levels of the active agent in the blood, and that's never been done for echinacea. But the argument against the New England Journal article by Turner et al. is that it was they used the wrong virus now. If echinacea works it is by non-specific mechanisms and if so that makes no sense that it would only be effective against one virus because the initial response against all viruses is a non-specific mechanism. If echinacea were to work I would anticipate that it would be better at prevention than therapy as the immune response to the virus is and should be greater than any effect you're going to see from echinacea. And if it turns out that echinacea is a potent immune enhancer, then I would also predict that the subsequent anti-inflammatory response, which always occurs after inflammation, which is what quacks call boosting the immune system, should lead to a long-term slight increase in infection rates. Now all this will not happen, of course, because echinacea is crap. But if echinacea is going to work, it's going to be nonspecific, and it should be the same against every single virus. So what can be concluded? most importantly, don't trust the results of meta-analysis. They are interesting, but you shouldn't use them to determine patient therapeutic interventions, because methodologic issues make them suspect. They are not to be trusted, and if you use them in clinical practice, you should have, if not mastery, at least an excellent understanding of the source material. Nothing beats a double-blind, randomized, controlled trial. And since those have been done in echinacea and they show it doesn't do crap, my still assessment is that echinacea for the common cold is crap. And finally, if you really want to understand what's going on in a complex therapeutic or diagnostic issue, you need to go back and read all the original articles in detail. So, that's it. As always, if you like this, write me a review on iTunes. If you want to support the podcast, there is now a PayPal button on the website, Bandwidth Costs. But I know this is like NPR. People listen, but nobody donates. But thank you for listening. This is Brock 2 is a side project of Pussware.com, where you will also find the Persiflagers podcast, a bi-weekly review of infectious diseases, which is available for Type 1 CME. This is copyright 2007 with the Creative Commons. References are on the show notes and can be linked from quackcast.com, where there are old podcasts as well. Send your hate mail and spam and perhaps even questions about quackery to know it all at quackcast.com. I will eventually answer all my email. It just takes time. And as always, thank you for listening, and goodbye.